Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network and heard on Arutz Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com slash radio. Welcome to another Thursday morning political talk. And we are pleased to have back with us on Spin Class, Maggie Haberman, now of the New York Times. The first draft, it's a email, morning email that you should be getting every single morning, setting the stage for the political day. Maggie, welcome back to Spin Class. Thanks for having me. So another, another debate in the books, and first and foremost, everybody was looking at the Republican debate, and they were looking at the stage, and there's some people not there on the big stage, number one mm-hmm. being the governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, uh, absent from this stage. He loves the big stage. Uh, can Chris Christie make it back onto the big stage? Uh, yes, he certainly can make it onto the back onto the big stage the next time. I think the CNN debate is next. I don't know what the criteria is uh, for making it. The polling criteria was higher for this one than it had been for the others. This was an average of uh, 2.5 percentage points in the polls. The others were 1%. Uh, I don't think it was terrible for Chris Christie not to be on the main stage. I think that he got a lot more talk time uh, than he would have had otherwise, and I think that he was able to farewell by comparison to uh, you know people who who uh, have been in the in the in this uh, JV debate uh, for a while now uh, you know he kept his sights very focused on the general election and Hillary Clinton and on electability and that is his message and and he stuck to it yeah I think strategically he did an excellent job with that no question that he dominated that he dominated that piece of it but the question I, I would have with regard to Christie is, you know, he had a great week. He, he definitely registers in New Hampshire. And, but yet, somehow, you know, the way the screwy debate format is, is out there, he is, you know, they're knocking people out left and right. They, they can't seem to figure out how to get the, how to get the tuning right of this, of this whole debate uh, chorus, of this debate orchestra. You know, it, it just seems to be, there seems to be an issue every debate. This qualitatively was a much better debate, moderated. I think everybody would agree with that. But the absence of Christie, perhaps of Huckabee uh, from there, I think a little bit less so, is a, bit, a little, little bit less of a factor. But the, uh, but the absence of, of Christie is definitely a problem. And um, going forward, you know, who knows what the RNC is going to do if nobody drops out. But uh, I guess... It's a, problem thing- for, it's a problem for Christie. I don't know who's it, who's it a problem for other than Christie. Well, no, I think, you know, the, the, the moderate wing of the party, if you will, the establishment wing of the party, um, you know, I, I actually, I'm not even sure who's in what lane of the, of the, of the party these days, you know, but uh, perhaps, you know, not having that voice in there, you had to have John Kasich as the angry moderate in this, in this debate. I mean, I, I think that you had, you had Jeb Bush as a pretty establishment figure making a lot of the same points that... Chris Christie made about Hillary Clinton and about the need to, you know, not not letting Hillary Clinton's campaign high five, as he put it, uh, over what they were saying about immigration and as Trump was talking. I mean, I I, I think that Christie has Chris. I agree with you that Christie has um, masterful political gifts that others do not have. Um, there's no question about that. Um, but but I think that in terms of you know what's being other than other than sort of what comes out of the debate as a show. Um, uh, the I think Christie actually did, was not harmed by what happened here. Okay, so let, since you mentioned Jeb uh, Jeb Bush, and I think that's kind of the way you go. You mentioned somebody. Yeah, we could get to talk about them. Did Jeb Bush stop the bleeding? I mean, I I don't know. I was underwhelmed once again by his performance, but maybe 
I'm personally biased at this point, but or maybe people's expectations are so low that if he has a mediocre performance, people said, "Oh, great." So what happened with Jeb Bush? I think that Jeb Bush um, performed probably about as well as he's going to perform. Um, I definitely think he stopped the bleeding. I don't know that it's enough to advance himself, but he's certainly proving that he's going to fight, and he's not lying down, which he seemed to be doing in some of the other debates. Um, you know, he I thought, um, handled himself very well early on. Uh, you know, a bit too much time talking about, you know, I had little time before, I want my time now. But he, was, he shed the nervousness that had, had really characterized his earlier appearances, I thought. I thought he seemed much more in command. Um, he seemed sure-footed when he was going at Donald Trump. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I think this was, uh, I think this was a good night for him. I think where he got tangled up, as he always does, was toward the end when it was a question of, that related to something policy-wise involving his brother, which was the, uh, uh, the bank bailouts from 2008. And he couldn't quite give a straight answer, and he never was quite the same. He had some weird moment where he was trying to make a joke or waiting for the audience to pick up on something he had said, and he paused for effect and then said, well, whatever, and kept going. Um, th- those were not ideal, but those were, those were the rarity last night as opposed to before where that was really all you would see. Right. You know, the, the whole field seemed to be flummoxed by the entire bank bailout, and, and that should have been an obvious question. I mean, Ted Cruz was very sure-footed, but it seemed like an absurd answer that we're going to let you know, major banks with depositors fail. Uh, and um, of course, most many of these it's accounts are insured anyway. But you know the whole the whole thing. Everybody seemed to not be able. They, they seemed caught between conservative orthodoxy, if you will, lack of big government, and and this idea that we can't just let the economic system get flushed down the toilet. Of course, you know John Kasich was like, "Well, it'll never happen again." Right. I mean, that was, you know, John Kasich's answer was it's not going to happen again, and I won't, I won't let that happen. And then it became sort of how can you declare that he couldn't. But, I mean, I, I have to say that it was a strange, uh, um, uh, a strange thing in that moment. You know, Cruz, who is certainly playing up populism, um, Cruz's wife is an is a on-leave Goldman Sachs executive. So you had the, the spouse of a Goldman Sachs executive having an argument about this with somebody who used to work for Lehman Brothers um, and who, in, in a past debate, uh, said he was, you know, proud of having been a banker. Um, that's not where the country is right now. So it was a strange, it was a strange interaction. And, and notice that Donald Trump stayed totally silent through that whole thing. Uh, he doesn't want to talk about bailouts. He doesn't want to talk about government handouts for business. Uh, no. Just, right. No. Uh, <laughs> he so, does not. That is true. We are... Let's just say for a second that the consensus is that Rubio had the best performance out there, and you know that was kind of expected. Was it the performance that is just going to uh, allow him to get into that top three now? I mean, what does Rubio have to do now to get in with to get to the Carson Trump level? Uh, I mean, I, it's a it's it's a complicated question. I mean, it's and there's a bunch of different moving pieces. Um, Right, I guess they could come down, he could go up type of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where they could say the same and and other people could drop out. I mean, I think that um, Rubio could get, I think Rubio will not get Trump votes. I think Rubio could get some, um, in fact, I'm confident of that, but Rubio could get some Carson votes. Uh, So, I mean, if Trump just sort of stays where he is, if if you start to see an erosion in in Carson support, the question is going to be whether it goes to Rubio, Trump, or Cruz. Um, and they will all be vying for it. But, you know, Rubio needs, 
he needs other people to disappear. He needs these other people who are getting, you know, 3%, 4%, 5%, who are hanging around in this incredibly crowded field um, to stop taking up space. Honestly, there's too many people for anybody to rise too high right now. Right. And Trump... I know it's not a great answer, but I don't... But at the moment, it's going to no, stay no, that way for... No, it's right. I mean, right now, the, the field is so cluttered, and the lanes, if you will, the establishment lane, the non-establishment lane, the you know what the the neurosurgeon lane, whatever the different lanes are, they they just seem to be so cluttered uh, with with different with different people. Uh, you know, it, it just seems to be very you know one thing. One thing I thought that was interesting is that Rand Paul seems to finally be staking out territory well outside the mainstream of the Republican Party. Rand Paul seems to, you know, felt comfortable enough last night saying that I am not willing to fund the military it, to the extent, I guess, that the others are, which would be a, which would seem to be an outlier when it comes to GOP uh, politics. I mean, he's not an outlier when it comes to GOP politics. He's actually where, the, where, where large sections of the base have been for quite a while prior to the rise of ISIS. In the, in the post-George W. Bush uh, Republican Party, there's been a huge debate about foreign policy and, and the level of intervention that the United States should be involved in. Um, neoconservatives believe in a, in a muscular policy, basically, at all costs. Rand Paul has been, although he bristles at the term, much more of the isolationist wing. Um, he would say anti-interventionist wing. Uh, he was called an isolationist by Marco Rubio last night. But you are correct that you have not seen Rand Paul really embrace what frankly helped him rise in prominence in the national stage, which was those positions, because he had been trying not to be associated too closely with his dad. And in, in do, his dad, Ron Paul, the congressman who ran for president uh, twice and, and got a certain chunk of sort of um, uh, anti-interventionist, um, uh, uh, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, working-class voters to some extent, um, very concerned about uh, an overextensive and overintrusive government. That's that's what a lot of that goes with Trump now. Um, but you are seeing um, uh, Rand Paul, I think, be more of go with what brought him to the dance in the first place. I don't know that that's enough to vault him back to where he was. And what do you, does Trump seem to have a personal problem with Carly Fiorina? Does he feel threatened by her? Because I noticed that the only personal insult he really held, uh, hurled last night was at Carly Fiorina for interrupting people. I mean, what... what I mean, I, he, he does not like her. She gets under his skin. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if he... I don't think he's threatened by her. That's not a word I would use, but I mean... I don't want to put him on the couch, but he... Uh, but I think that... And, and I doubt he's threatened by her since he's a 25% or whatever he's at, and she's a you know, 4%. But, um, but I do think that she gets under his skin for some reason. And, I mean, she's not the only candidate who does by any measure. Um, I was interested in that exchange because everyone has been very concerned and sort of timid about how to, how to approach her without looking like you're attacking the only woman on stage. Um, you know, I, I don't know that it played well for him necessarily. Um, but uh, he certainly got, there were boos in the hall. It was hard to tell whether those were at her or at him. My guess was they were at him. Um, but it was a it was an it was an odd exchange. Um, Rand Paul before Trump said that Rand Paul kept trying. She had interrupted him, and he kept trying to get his time back and kept saying, "Can I have my time back, please? Can I have my time back, please?" And so I think there was a, a where Fiorina has excelled in these debates is at jumping in and creating moments for herself. 
And I think that the other candidates are, are trying to avoid letting her do that now. Yeah, when, when she seems to have the, the, the mic, and when she seems to, she, she does have a commanding presence. Uh, on the mic. I yeah, mean, look, she's she's very she's talented. She's it's interesting, especially having covered um, portions of her Senate race. Um, she's uh, in in 2010. She was not very talented then. She's become much better. Um, and uh, you know, so she's she's what she has not been able to do is translate these debate moments into something more durable um, in polls. And and we'll see if that'll happen after last night. Right. It certainly seemed that she is, uh, you know, she got a bounce uh, from the first. Well, she got it onto the big stage in the first debate. She got mm-hmm. a bounce after that. But uh, that has mm-hmm. since faded. Uh, I know yep. time is short, Maggie. I, we're talking to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. So I just want to address uh, a, a Democratic side issue in the particular of Mayor Bill de Blasio's Iowa income inequality conclave that has now been canceled. In fact, it was joked about at the Al Smith dinner last night. Uh, Mike Bloomberg said, uh, we got the mayor to show up because the staff told him that the dinner was in Iowa. So uh, that got a great hearty round of laughs. But more seriously, did Bill de Blasio totally blow this one? And I hate to harp on it. We talked about it last week, but it certainly No, seems, I understand. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, yeah, what, I mean what look, I, I, had a, I, had, I had a bit of a... Um, Strange exchange with Anthony Weiner, former former mayoral candidate on Twitter, uh, about this earlier. Who he believes that this is being this is all sort of a, a media creation that has helped gin up outrage about De Blasio and, and therefore sunk his poll numbers. I think De Blasio has done himself a lot of damage, uh, with or without um, help from the press. I think that this was just sort of so maladroitly handled to the extent that you know, De Blasio dragged this out. He wouldn't endorse Hillary Clinton, whose campaign he managed in 2000 for Senate. Um, like, wouldn't endorse her, on and on and on. I have to hear more. I'm holding a big forum in Iowa where he tried to set himself up as sort of this this this, this uh, 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 kingmaker. And, you know, you're, you can't be a kingmaker if no one's going to come ask for your blessing. And one by one they made clear they weren't going to. So then he very hastily had to endorse Hillary Clinton, at which point his endorsement was not worth anything to her. Um, and he had made it so he had no leverage anymore. So, And all he managed to do was annoy her and her husband. So I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it matters for the long run. Where it could matter is if, you know, de Blasio finds himself challenged in a primary. You could see the Clintons, who have done this before, um, you know, quietly helping the opposition. Um, and and not feeling bad about it at all behind the scenes. And that's where I just don't really understand. I I think there's a bigger issue here for de Blasio, which is just that I think that he, um, I think that he has tried to do a lot of what Bloomberg did. And Bloomberg was unusual, as you know, in terms of mayors that we have had in our cities. Um, Rudy Giuliani was a national figure, but for different reasons than Bloomberg was. And a lot of it was Bloomberg's money enabled, personal money enabled him to do things that just no one else is able to do. And so I think de Blasio has tried to set up the same level of national presence that Bloomberg's aides, uh, you know, since since his first term had been seeking for him. Um, and, you know, but Bloomberg sort of spent the first term working. Remember, Bloomberg's numbers were at 24% after he raised property taxes. And uh, it took him a while to come back up for the 2005 re-elect, and he finally did. And then after that, they went and looked at other stuff. De Blasio's only had the job for two years. Uh, and he is casting his eye nationally and trying to be a progressive leader for much of that time. Um, and I, I just think that that's just a that's just a dangerous game. 
Okay, Maggie Haberman for the New York Times. She covers politics and at first draft, uh, as well as, you know, you should read her every day, uh, folks out there. You should be reading uh, New York Times coverage of politics. It is quite impressive, and uh, she is getting the inside and everything in between of the presidential race. Maggie, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you. And this is Spin Class, and we're talking politics here on the Nachum Siegel Network, as well as Arut Sheva, tuned in to IsraelNationalNews.com. And we have with us from Agudath Israel of America, the National Director of State Relations, A.D. Motzen, and coming up tonight at the Stanford, in Stanford, a Stanford Hotel... Uh, Crown Plaza or something like that. I apologize, but you'll find it if you need to get there. Crown Plaza, Stanford, Connecticut, uh, will be the Aguda Convention, the annual convention, which lasts from Thursday night until Sunday morning. A.D., welcome back to Spin Class. Thank you very much. Great to be back. So, A.D., you are active in so many states that I could probably, uh, and I mean active, I mean really active, engaged. I get your weekly emails, and uh, there isn't the time that you are not in three or four states uh, in that past week. And tell me what's going on on the front. You know, a lot of your, a lot of stuff you do is regarding school choice, but there are other issues that you tackle as well. What is a day in the life right now, these days, of A.D. Mutson, and what are, what are you doing for Claudia Yisrael and for the Agudath Israel community? Um, as my uh, new assistant is finding out, there is no typical day for A.D. Mutson. I can be, as you said, in different states. Um, and on different issues, but yes, yeah, school choice. There are um, there are many states that are have created new programs, or we're working on implementing um, implementing programs, drafting bills together with legislators and policymakers in different states. So we are active on uh, trying to get um, different policies that help on the education side, um, on the religious freedom side. Uh, there is with end of life care that um, definitely come up, and uh, we are at the forefront of that as well. So um, everything in between, all across the country, um, there is no typical day. So tell me for a second, a lot of people, they think of the Aguda Convention, they're thinking of a lot of speeches, they're thinking of a Muster Schmooze, they're thinking of all kinds of things just you know, sitting there, but why is it so important for people from around the country to come together once a year, if not more often than once a year, but people from states and cities around the country where the firm community finds itself, where the Haredi community finds itself, to come together to unite, I guess, uh, why is that so important to have that critical mass of people there to act on behalf of, to be active on behalf of each other and on behalf of these issues? Um, excellent question. So Aguda is more than an organization and a 501c3. It is a movement, and it is a grassroots, grassroots movement. If you notice the advertising for this year's convention um, or see it on uh, yourconvention.org, we redesigned the convention so that it deals with that very issue. We're going to have lots of small groups, small discussions, where you are not simply a participant in the back of the room, but there will be plenty of opportunities for everyone's um, input and some practical uh, discussions uh, on a host of different topics. We are only as powerful as the people we represent, and that's you, all your listeners who are out there, and everyone is invited. There's no cost 
Sukkot. It's an open convention for um, while well, the meals and the Shabbos uh, reservations are, uh, you know, need to be done. Uh, they're already sold out. It's too late for that. But uh, anybody can come to the hotel and attend and participate. Um, without their participation, we will be uh, talking to ourselves. Uh, if we want to change Israel, we need uh, activists. We need Afghanim. And everyone in this convention could be a leader, which is our theme. So how do you train people to be leaders? They just come for a weekend, they come for a couple of days, and poof, you're ready? You're ready to be sent out? You're ready to go out there and conquer the world? So, uh, well, you, you have to be a little careful before you go out and conquer the world and say, I'm the leader of the free world. However, um, if you, we have uh, recently had a series of excellent videos about leadership. Um, uh, a uh, individual, Yoel Gold, put out uh, different vignettes of regular people whether it was a uh, Klein's ice cream uh, who, uh, who helped Mahajan Dairy when there was a blackout, and whether it was uh, somebody giving an example of integrity. There are different qualities of leadership that all of us possess or could possess, and we all are either leaders or potential leaders, and, um, and come to the convention and find out how uh, you can become a leader that makes a, a big difference in your community. So there are a lot of people who associate your job is primarily political, and there are a lot of people who associate the Aguda with politics or advocacy as well as legal help and legal assistance for people. But there's a lot of discussion, at least on, from the program, there's a lot of discussion of some of the issues within, uh, you know, Klape Pnim for the community, a lot of community issues that, w that are there to be discussed. And... You know, what what is the what is the balance between the two as far as you know as as far as that? Um, so you know, as you mentioned, they're going to make it more press and and especially uh, in your circles where uh, political interest on what we do on the, in the public face. But as you said earlier, it's a movement, and um, the purpose of the Agora, same as it was a hundred years ago, was to create a organization or a movement that unites. Uh, Orthodox Jews from across the spectrum under the banner of Daftara, and the purpose is to solve the problems facing the Jewish people. So in some cases, it's political and government issues, and I deal with that. But there are many problems facing Kali Israel, including the social issues and internal issues, and that, too, is part of our agenda, and that's why the convention is a great opportunity to discuss those issues and create solutions. Project Yes came out of a good convention. There are, we can name a whole long list um, of projects that have spun off from the Aguda. Um, Shubu all came originally, were discussed at Aguda conventions, and then spun off as their own organization. So we uh, look at ourselves as an incubator for ideas, and we're hoping that people can come and share uh, their solutions to these problems. You're proud to call yourself an out-of-towner, a proud Cincinnatian, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I think that uh, out-of-towners are, uh, are, have a tremendous amount of uh, when it comes, particularly when it comes to advocacy and politics. But how, what's the difference, or how does a in-towner, or most people, some people listening to this show who are in-towners, how, how do you explain the difference or the impact that an organization, an umbrella organization, like a good like a good Israel has on the out of town communities. You, 
I should focus on that. Out-of-town community, out-of-town community is very, uh, it's very simple. The, how do you explain to the in-towners? Like, how do you explain to somebody from Brooklyn who said, who takes a lot for granted as far as Yiddishkeit? How, how, do, how do you – how does the – is what's the impact of a good at Israel uh, outside, you know, in places like Cincinnati and Cleveland and Chicago – Indianapolis. I mean, all the places that you're traveling, Atlanta. Uh, what what is what is the impact where the Jewish community itself is smaller, right? You don't have the numbers, if you will, but you you still manage to have sure. an impact. So talk about that impact that's out of town. Sure, a couple things. First of all, um, the fact that in, let's say in the government area, government arena, many of the legislators um, have never met an Orthodox Jew. Some will admit they barely know any Jews at all in a state that has a small Jewish population or the population is limited to a specific uh, geographic area in the state. So by having a good of Israel representatives, whether it's lay leadership or paid professionals who uh, are employees of Agoda, this is their sort of voice, the voice of the Orthodox community, uh, which is something that they never had. So we are uh, the community's voice on issues, whether it's religious issues again, education issues, and that can have a great impact because we are their, sometimes their only conduit, their only liaison. Uh, in a bigger city like New York, so uh, politicians, uh, you know, have seen Orthodox Jews every single day uh, down the block, and um, it's a very different environment. Um, so that's one aspect. I mean, the, the impact on the community is, you know, say, taking Ohio, for example, millions of dollars in school vouchers, uh, where while we are still a small percentage of the state, but the Orthodox community has played a leading role, and now we have a superstar, Yitz Frank, who, is our Cleveland, who lives in Cleveland, is our Ohio director, um, is intimately involved in the school choice movement and is seen as a, uh, um, a leader and a, uh, a respected person uh, person in the state house, which impacts the Jewish community and really much beyond that. And I also noticed as part of the schedule that on Sunday morning, you're going to be leading a uh, session called the Growing Political Force of the Orthodox Community, Opportunities and Responsibilities. Anything you want to preview for the audience on that panel? Um, so I, a couple things. First of all, I am uh, excited uh, that, uh, I, I, that you... Michael are uh, willing and able to uh, join us on Sunday morning. Uh, last year, you lent um, a, a lot to the to the session we had, which talked last year. We talked about the politicians. Should we have Orthodox politicians and, and ramifications? And as an elected official yourself, that that was uh, your insights were were helpful. This year, we're going to focus more on the community. Uh, now that we're growing, what does that mean as far as what responsibilities do we have? What opportunities should we be undertaking? And uh, I even want to get into a little bit about should we be swing voters or should we be all Republicans or all Democrats or, or maybe both? Uh, what, what, ex what does that mean now that uh, we are suddenly uh, thrust in the limelight and our growing numbers, wealth, and political muscle is, is growing, especially in the East Coast. So that's something that is on the minds of a lot of people. It's going to be a discussion. We have a few elected officials going to be there um, and other uh, uh, political activists, and we hope to have a robust discussion. Well, it certainly sounds like it will be. And I look, I'm looking forward to it. Obviously, that was a shameless self-plug on my part. I'm glad I had you do it instead of doing it myself. Uh, Sunday morning at 10 a.m., 
on the at the Stanford Crown Plaza. You can catch a great Orthodox-focused political discussion at the Agoda Israel Convention. Uh, A.D. Motsen, the National Director of State Relations, thanks for joining us. And we hope that tonight goes fantastic, the whole weekend goes fantastic. And uh, look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. This is Spin Class, and uh, we'll do our quick wrap-up. I just want to note is that a young man from my community, from the five towns, Eli Barachov, was was, uh, shot in a terrorist attack in Hebron this past Shabbos. He was shot in the leg. Baruch Hashem, he had successful surgery. He's now back in the U.S. But his family said that when they contacted the United States consulate for help, they did not respond. They did not even bother to call back. And I think that this is something that we all need to keep in mind, that when you are in Yerushalayim or you're in the uh, Yehudah Shomron, the responsibility is not with the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv, but the responsibility is with the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, which is its own thing. And primarily, you know, there are a lot of people there that they very uh, – let's, let's just uh, think for a second that the, many of the people there are probably pretty focused not on the Jewish community but elsewhere. Anyway, I uh, hope, hope Baruch Hashem he's doing well. And I have to say that it's a real, if it's in fact true, the U.S. consulate did not respond to a young American who was wounded in a terrorist attack. It's an outrage and it's shocking. And we should all be absolutely up in arms with regard to that. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.